Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of The Taming of Democracy Assistance, Why Democracy Promotion Does Not Confront Dictators. The author is Sarah Sunbush. Sarah's book is published by Cambridge University Press. I hope that you enjoy the interview that I did with her. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I have the real... Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the author of The Taming of Democracy Assistance, Why Democracy Promotion Does Not Confront Dictators. The author is Sarah Sunbush. Sarah's book is published by Cambridge University Press. I hope that you enjoy the interview that I did with her. Welcome back to the podcast. Again, I have the real pleasure to talk today to the author of, of The Taming of Democracy Assistance, Why Democracy Promotion Does Not Confront Dictators. The author is Sarah Sunbush. Sarah, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? I'm doing great, and it's a pleasure to have you on. It's a pleasure to have read the book. Before we get to it, tell us about yourself. Uh, where are you now? Where have you been? Uh, share with us, with us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Thanks. So I am a, an assistant professor at Temple University, which is based in Philadelphia. And in Philadelphia, I'm also affiliated with a think tank here, which is called the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Before I came to Philadelphia and Temple, I was getting my PhD in political science from Princeton University, and then I did a postdoc at the Kennedy School at Harvard. And um, it was when I was a graduate student at Princeton that I started working on this book, which was my dissertation for my PhD, and then I revised it uh, during my postdoc, and now it just came out. Yeah, that's, that's wonderful. Congratulations. On all of these different things that have must have been occurring over the last couple of years, you've produced this really interesting book that is broadly about foreign aid and, and the current approaches taken by, by many countries, including and most prominently the United States. Um, let's, let's talk about some, some definitions to, to get us started. Um, what are the various categories of democracy assistance that are available to countries across the world. And, and maybe in talking about those, that's sort of the toolbox of things that are available, maybe you can illustrate one or two with some specific examples. You, you give some really nice illustrations in the book. So what's available to a country that wants to promote democracy? Yeah. So if a country wants to promote democracy, it does have, as you say, a toolkit, you know, with a number of options that that it can employ. So some of the aspects of democracy promotion that are most headline grabbing would be tools like uh, promoting democratization overseas through things like military intervention. You know, you might think about something like the Iraq war as being an example of that, or at least it was in, in the rhetoric. Democracy promotion also can involve things like economic sanctions and rewards. So sometimes foreign aid that countries in the developing world really want to have access to will be given 
only on the condition that those countries democratize or it will be withheld um, if the countries don't meet some minimum standards of political reform. Democracy promotion also we sometimes hear about happening through international organizations. So probably the most well-known example of this would be the European Union, which makes membership conditional on meeting some standards for political rights and other types of freedoms. And so many countries in Central and Eastern Europe have uh, democratized in order to get access to the benefits that the European Union offers. And so these are, I would say, some of the kind of headline-grabbing tools of democracy promotion, the ones that that are the most controversial that we hear about the most. Um, and then what this book is actually about is another t- tool of democracy promotion that I think really important, but maybe in the headlines a little bit less, which is democracy assistance, which is a type of foreign aid that's given to non-governmental organizations overseas that might try to promote democratic transition in their country or might be trying to help consolidate democracy in their country. It's also sometimes given to governments that say they need some help from other countries to democratize. And this is going on actually um, in more than 100 countries all over the world right now. Um, It's One person who studies democracy assistance, Thomas Carruthers, has called it sort of the day in, day out type of democracy promotion because it happens a little bit less on more under the radar. uh, But, you know, in every region of the world, it's going on in my book. I focus on some of the cases of democracy assistance that have gone to the Middle East, like in Jordan and Tunisia. Um, But pretty much any developing country If you look at it nowadays, you're going to find some democracy assistance going on there. And so that's what what the book is about. Yeah, I'd like to go back to those cases um, of Jordan, Tunisia briefly, uh, maybe at the end of our conversation. But but you you take this this uh, toolkit and and you you break this up into regime compatible and not regime compatible tools. I wonder if you could explain to us the the distinction between these two and and why this really matters. Sure. So democracy assistance sometimes takes a really confrontational approach to countries that are not democratic. So um, examples of this might include support for political parties or dissident groups or trade unions um, in countries that are not free. And these kinds of aid programs going to civil society, going to political parties will really agitate for political change and be quite dangerous sometimes um, for dictators to allow. And so sometimes uh, we've seen recently that countries have that are not democratic have tried to prevent these types of democracy assistance programs going on. These are definitely not efforts that we would call regime compatible. They're dangerous. Um, They have been associated, other researchers have found, with democratic transitions in countries like Poland, um, in countries that were involved in the color revolution, um, and elsewhere. But there's another type of democracy assistance, which I call in the book the more regime-compatible forms of democracy assistance. And these are programs that um, 
say they're trying to support democracy, but can actually be quite complementary with the strategies that an autocratic ruler is employing to try to stay in power. So a good example of these regime-compatible democracy assistance programs would be support for women's political participation. Um, This has been a big part of international democracy assistance in the last 20 years and often involves encouraging women to run for political office or supporting female politicians once they're there, getting out the vote with a particular eye to female voters, this kind of thing. Um, But The thing is, is that um, trying to increase the number of women in parliament, if the parliament actually is kind of a sham and doesn't have any authority in terms of making legislation and is kind of a window dressing for for an authoritarian government, as is the case in Jordan, I argue in my book, and other people have made the case that this is going on in post-Soviet countries as well. Well, you know, increasing the number of women in a parliament like that it doesn't seem to really challenge the authoritarian dominance in that country. And in fact, can actually be quite compatible with the strategy of authoritarian survival, which may be to try to make the regime look more liberal with an eye eye towards impressing international audiences, or maybe also to um, get some domestic audiences that might be pressuring for reform off the government's back. And so there's various types of democracies that I argue in the book, and women's political participation is just one example, that end up really being complementary with a dictator's survival strategy. And so what I'm trying to do in the book, or one of the things that I'm trying to do is explain, you know, why did these kinds of programs come about? Why is it the case that democracy assistance might end up being uh, compatible with the regimes of undemocratic countries? Now, I wonder if you could place this into a bit of historical context for us. In the past, what was the preferred approach taken by the U.S. government, um, the, the regime compatible or the non-compatible uh, approach, and, and when did things start to change? That's a good question. So um, when democracy assistance started, which was really in the 1980s, um, right before the Cold War ended, the forms that democracy assistance took were in in the main sort of these really challenging, not regime compatible programs. And over time, the proportion of programs that have gone to activities like women's political participation, but also support for local governance, which tends to be kind of regime compatible, these kinds of programs have steadily increased. So instead of being a small minority of the foreign aid programs in the 1980s, today these kinds of programs are the majority of what the U.S. government is funding under the heading of democracy assistance. Um, so it's been, it's been a transition that's happened sort of gradually over the last 30 years while democracy assistance has been going on. Now, now your argument focus and a lot of your analysis focuses on the emergence of, of various non-governmental organizations. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how democracy assistance provided by an NGO differs from providers like government agencies or multinational organizations. Is there a difference in, in some way in, in what happens when an NGO is contracted or receives a grant to do this versus when it's done by a government or a multinational? Yeah, it, there are some significant differences. So 
non-governmental organizations or NGOs, um, they often have a much wider uh, wider scope in terms of the possibilities of their action overseas. Um, so if the U.S. government is um, implementing and designing a d- democracy assistance program in a country exclusively working through a government agency, then the government agency is going to be somewhat limited in terms of the kinds of actions that it can take. So um, because it's a government agency, it will need to be more concerned about maintaining positive relationships with the host government. It may also be subject to some problems in terms of being regarded as legitimate um, in by local actors in the country. So NGOs kind of have a greater freedom for action, which is, I would argue in the book, a double, double-edged sword, um, that they have more freedom for action than government agencies do is a good thing because they have the possibility of implementing some of these more confrontational programs where they're needed. It's hard for government agencies to do that. But at the same time, um, NGOs have their own agendas, and because they have more freedom for action than government agencies, sometimes NGOs may divert programs from the aims of their government funders and move them instead towards uh, what kinds of what, what kind of activities would help the NGOs survive. Um, and sometimes this leads NGOs to, even though they could adopt a pretty confrontational approach to promoting democracy, they take a sort of tamer, more regime-compatible approach because they think it would be in their best interest. Um, and they may be right because NGOs um, are kicked out of countries. We have seen in the example of Egypt in the last few years that civil society organizations that have taken foreign funding, their leadership has have has been thrown in jail um, and faced all sorts of really negative and dangerous consequences. So NGOs really have to worry about their survival, which can sometimes lead to programs that wouldn't be the same as what government agencies might have wanted. Now, in Chapter 4 of the book, you you measure what you call delegation relationships. What did you measure exactly? And, And what did you find in your analysis related to this idea? So in that chapter, I'm trying to understand how much freedom different organizations that are implementing democracy assistance have. Um, So, for example, I look within the category of aid to non-governmental organizations, and I think about which organizations are easier for government donors to monitor and which organizations are harder for government donors to monitor. And by monitor, I just mean, you know, uh, observe the outputs and outcomes of the program, be able to communicate information back and forth, that sort of thing. And in the chapter, one of the indicators that I draw on to sort of assess whether or not NGOs are easier or harder to monitor is whether or not the NGOs come from the country of the donors. So donors can fund NGOs. You know, American donors can fund American NGOs to work abroad. They can fund NGOs local to the country that's the target of democracy promotion. And they can also fund European NGOs that might have expertise in the country in question. And I argue that it's easier for the U.S. government to monitor American organizations for a variety of reasons, ranging from 
language, uh, to social connections, um, to uh, other types of um, familiarity between the donors and the organizations. And so I, I show that, or I argue that these NGOs are easier for the um, donor to fund and monitor. And I try to show that depending on the nationality of the organization that is being funded, the programs that are implemented are different. Um, and they track the nature of the program, track the nature of the funding or delegation relationship between the donor and the recipient. Now, let's talk about some of these statistical findings some of these big ideas in, in, in the context of, of a specific case. And I wanted to do so with this great cover of the book that you have. I, I wonder if you, you could maybe just to sort of describe the cover and kind of how that relates to this case of, of Tunisia and, and whether Tunisia illustrates some of the argument or, or all of the argument. Start with the cover. Tell, tell us about this beautiful picture. Thanks. Yeah, so the cover depicts an image of um, Tunis right after the Tunisian revolution that occurred in January 2011. And it's an image in front of the city hall, and uh, it's a sort of main gathering point in the city. And you can see the um, on the ground in uh, spray paint, um, Someone has written, yes, we can. Yes, we do. Um, so it's kind of this inspiring image of the revolution. And um, one of the cases that I look at in the book is the Tunisian case. And I sort of pick up right after the revolution, after this incredible success that the Tunisian people had overthrowing the long ruling dictator Ben Ali. And I try to examine what democracy assistance looks like there and how effective it is at supporting the continued democratization of Tunisia. One of the arguments that I make in the book that we haven't had the chance to talk about a lot yet pertains to um, the professionalization of the non-governmental organizations that are involved in democracy assistance. And in the book, I make the case that these organizations are as they become more professional, they become more worried about their own survival. We see this across a lot of different domains of advocacy and activism. You know, over time, as the activists become older, the organizations become older, things become a little bit more bureaucratic, a little bit more professional. Organizations start to behave differently. And in the book, I argue that as the organizations involved with democracy assistance, they you know, they were created really in the 1980s, and now they're often around 30 years old. And this professionalization, I argue, um, has made the uh, made this field of democracy assistance more technocratic um, and more focused on programs that will help organizations survive. Now, so one of the things that I show in the Tunisian case in light of this is that after the revolution, there was a lot of optimism. There was tons of international funding coming into the country. And uh, it was a very heady time, very optimistic. Tunisian civil society was very young and um, not professional at the time. Um, but I show in the chapter that very quickly after the revolution, 
Um, with all of this international attention came a bunch of the big, highly professional international NGOs that take a more bureaucratic approach to promoting democracy. And I suggest in the chapter that the arrival of the, of the big players in this field of democracy assistance is subtly changing the way that Tunisian civil society is organized and is also shifting the programs in, towards more of this technical, regime-compatible uh, activities. And, and so, so it sort of shows the early days of the professionalization of activism in Tunisia. Yeah, Sarah, the book is just so interesting. Um, uh, the book is out now. Uh, would you give us just a little hint of what you're working on now? Is is there uh, a continuation of this book, or is there uh, a new project that is going to fill up your summer? Yeah, I, I thanks for asking. I think there are a few things that I'm working on. One of the things I'm most excited about is a collaborative project that's returning to this case of Tunisia with um, Lauren Prather, who uh, just finished her PhD at Stanford University. And we're looking at the ways that international assistance around Tunisia's first major election cycle, which involved a parliamentary election and a presidential election in the fall of 2014, we're looking at the ways that international assistance during these elections have influenced people's perceptions of the credibility of elections and um, how they have influenced other types of outcomes related to democracy in Tunisia. And I'm really excited about the project because it sort of picks up on one of the themes that I became interested in when working on the book, which is how do people who are living in the countries that are the targets of democracy assistance, what do they make of this international aid? And it really matters what these individual sort of ordinary citizens think, because if you don't have their buy-in, you won't get democracy. You know, you need people voting in elections. You need people um, participating in other ways in the democratic process. So we conducted a large-scale um, survey of more than a 1,000 Tunisians last fall when the elections were going on. And so this summer, I'm going to be working with Lauren to analyze the data and uh, and hopefully get some uh, new publications out of that. So that's, I'm really excited about it. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. The, the, the current book is called The Taming of Democracy Assistance, Why Democracy Promotion Does Not Confront Dictators, published by Cambridge University Press. Sarah, thank you very much for your time today. I really appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. Thank you.